This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. We somehow measure excellence in institutions by the number of students we reject. And the more, the more students that we don't let in, it must inherently be a better place. Hello, welcome to Mr. Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. Hi, Mr. Klein. Welcome to the show. Let me begin today actually with a request. I am, you know, on the Weeds uh, Ask Me Anything recently. The Weeds is the, the policy podcast I co-host, but I wasn't on this Ask Me Anything. And one of the, the questions that Matt and Sarah and Dara got was, is Ezra ever going to finish his book? And then they all just laughed and moved on. And, and that's motivating. I appreciate that. I am going to finish my book. But part of getting a draft finished, because this is hard, is going to be my work converges for a bit. So you're going to notice in the coming months um, uh, a certain convergence between the themes I'm thinking about for the book and, and who's on the podcast. But I also wanted to, to ask this of you. If you're a listener of the show, I think at this point you probably know the themes that the book is dealing with, uh, political identity, polarization, the ways in which the parties have sorted, the ways in which the collisions of our coalitions have become more, more personal and more intense and how that is affecting other institutions in, in American politics. If there's someone you think I should talk to on this, someone you think it'd be interesting for me to interview, uh, somebody who studies polarization and political identity, somebody who exemplifies polarization and political identity, somebody who worsens it, somebody who makes it better, maybe has a solution to it. Uh, you know, I can only throw my own net so far, and I've gotten so many great ideas from you all over the years that I'd be very uh, interested to, to hear who you think I should talk to for a book like that, who you would like to hear on the show as I'm trying to finish my thinking on this. One thing I will note, too, uh, a chapter I'm really working on and trying to understand is why the Republican and Democratic parties have evolved in such different ways. Um, why do you have a Republican party that ultimately elected Donald Trump um, and a Democratic party that, you know, still at this point seems to be working mostly normally? Uh, I, I've got some interesting, I think, upcoming episodes on that topic. Topic. But if there are theories or thinkers or uh, voices uh, who you think are really good on that topic, I would love to, to know about them. Can you email me at Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com? Again, Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. Uh, your, your help is, as always, appreciated. Uh, today's show. So I did a couple months ago, I guess now, uh, an episode with Jonathan Haidt. Uh, 
Height is at New York University. He is a co-author of a, a book called The Coddling of American Mind. It's a show about campus political correctness and some of these broader debates about speech and political correctness and what we're free to say and not say. One of the responses I got from a lot of you afterwards was, this is a debate, a discussion that comes up a lot on this show. It comes up a lot in the media and, and that you wanted to hear some actual college administrators talk about it, that instead of it just being people who are in the, the kind of campus speech wars, so to speak, uh, that you wanted to hear somebody who is actually trying to, to, to run one of these institutions and, and maybe has a, a higher level perspective. So I thought that was a good idea. And so I asked Sean Decatur, the president of Kenyon College on the show. Um, I, I've been aware of, of Decatur's work for a while now. He gave a speech, it's probably now a couple of years ago, on campuses and free speech and civility and how some of the current debates fit in the context of what these residential colleges have always been that has really influenced my thinking on it. Um, he's the first African-American president of the university. So he exists at an interesting intersection of these currents. And he is somebody who is able to balance them really well in his own work and his own thinking. Um, in that speech I was mentioning, he, he said, and I found this really helpful for thinking about this, that there are behaviors on college campuses in general and at Kenyon in particular, they may have passed a standard for civility 50 years ago when the institution was all male and almost all white that would not be considered civil today. Uh, some may call this political correctness run amok, but it is actually, he said, progress. And this is an interesting frame in which to think about it. Um, and, and we talk about it a lot more in, in this conversation. But is what we are talking about something new or is what we are talking about the new application of something old? Were colleges ever these utterly free spaces or have they always been places where standards of civility and decency and acceptability were being imposed? And what is changing is not their existence, but who is imposing them, how they're being imposed and what they're responding to, what kind of country and culture they're responding to. And this speaks to some much bigger questions about colleges. Are students students, right? Are, are we in loco parentis? Or are they consumers paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for a product that they properly have a lot of opinions about how it is developed? How do we measure whether colleges are doing a good job? What are we asking of them? And is it just people can explore ideas? Is it how they operate in an increasingly diverse society? Like, what are we preparing them for? And what kinds of learning are we measuring? And what kinds of learning do we think uh, are, are valuable? Um I really enjoyed this conversation with Sean Decatur. I think he's got a rare, um, uh, I think he's got a lot of wisdom on this. So I'm proud to present it to you. Here's Sean Decatur, the president of Kenyon College. Sean Decatur, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So you actually run, is it running? Do you run a college campus? I, I maybe I, I lead a college campus. You lead a college campus. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, which is, it's just actually, I find a fascinating and enjoyable job. You know, my, I still feel my first job first and foremost is as educator and sort of playing the role as an educator in the campus, but it's also then a, a large and complex organization to, to manage. One of the reasons I wanted to have you on is that the idea that there is a free speech crisis, a political correctness crisis, that something is going profoundly wrong on college campuses. It comes up on this podcast a lot. And I've had people write in and say, you should have an administrator here to talk about it. And I've read some of the things you've written about this, and they've all seemed very thoughtful. So why don't I begin there? Is there a crisis of free speech, of political correctness on campus? From my view, not at all. You know, that there are... Uh, 
isolated anecdotal incidents that get a lot of broader attention. Uh, but if you look at what's going on on campuses, you know, and it, and if you spend a lot of time with students, you know, you find that students are, you know, they are engaged in their communities. They have a set of ideals that they're trying to navigate and figure out the distance between the, you know, sort of their ideals and the reality on the ground. Uh, they are trying to figure out, you know, both who they are and how who they are relates to, you know, their community in the broader world. I mean, all the things that I think colleges and college students have done for generations. And, you know, I don't see a significant change in that. And I think a lot of the the rhetoric around a, a sense of a new crisis on campus is really overblown. But it, you, you say you don't see a change on it. But to take the side of the people who do see a change, trigger warnings, safe spaces, that there's speech is violence, that there's a there's a feeling that there is a discourse around speech and ideas that has changed from when I was in college or or when you were in college to being afraid of speech that is contrary to what one believes and to being more intolerant of it, that rather than the idea being that, you know, the best ideas will win in debate, it's that the worst ideas or the idea, the ideas I don't like have to be deplatformed so they can't even be inside of a debate. And, you know, there certainly is a, a growing sense of, you know, I'd say, uh, insecurity among college students, I think among young people, in some ways, I think a broader anxiety about who we are and the nature of of safety and comfort and the you know that issue of is college a place that i feel safe is something that we confront on a larger level right and i think it's something that cuts not just across issues of speech but across you know the general relationship that students are trying to form with each other and with the institution and you know there's a notion of and i think a conflation of the ideas of of comfort and safety uh, and and confusion about then what that means for what a learning environment is about. You know that in some ways, if a learning environment, if a classroom is going well, everyone should feel a little bit uncomfortable and on edge, and you should feel challenged. And that that actually runs against the notion of the the classroom or the campus as a place where one feels you know sort of comfortable all of the comfortable all of the time. And this this idea of, uh, and I'd say the broadening definition of safety, you know, safety has gone going from a notion of direct physical safety and a sense of physical threat that people feel to a sense of safety as a threat to my identity and sense of belonging is a, you know, is a, a shift of definition of that term. And I think an overuse and abuse of that term, which is, which is problematic. And I'd say that's actually though problematic on campuses, but if we look more broadly, you know, I think that that concept that we should be safe, meaning safe and unchallenged or safe in our, our sort of concept of what it means to belong unchallenged is is drifting out beyond campuses to the broader community as well. So I've been trying to think about this idea of safety and safetyism. I had John Hyde on the show, and, and this is something he talks a lot about in his book. And I feel like I, I, I see this one a little bit both ways, and I'm not sure... I'm not only not sure which way is true, but I'm not sure if either way is fully true, right? Many, many things can be true at once. But on the one hand, I'm somebody who has almost like dedicated my life to debate, right? I'm a I'm a I'm an arguer. I like have conversations like these. I I I believe that, you know, you beat words with other words. And so when I hear people talk about when I hear them react to words with a language of safety, 
I rebel from it a bit. I have a, I have a kind of visceral sympathy for, for the other side of that argument. And then I've been thinking a little bit, though, because I've been trying to read what college students write about this and, and, and what people are saying and, and try to see it from a perspective not my own. And one of the things I've been thinking is if you're somebody who's gone through life feeling persistently unsafe, that the feeling of day-to-day unsafety is a very normal feeling for you, that maybe it makes sense that safety is one of the concepts you reach for more quickly than others. And, you know, I, I was looking at these, at these numbers, uh, about one in four transgender people has been attacked for, for what they are. And when they say that there is a safety issue around what pronouns are used for them, I hear a lot of people dismiss that. But obviously, we send a lot of signals about what is and isn't acceptable in our society and the words that we, you know, make it, we allow people to use. Like if I was in a room where people used anti-Semitic language, I would feel less safe there. And I would think that was an obvious thing. And I wonder how much some of the language around safety reflects that, too, that it's people who have often had a feeling of unsafety and are not all that well respected in our language, that they're saying something that is actually true. It just doesn't accord to what a lot of us who haven't felt that doesn't accord to the way we experience the world. And so it sounds very strange to our ears. I'm curious which which side of that you think is true. Right. And and actually, I think uh, that's one of those things where both there's truth in both sides of uh, or both perspectives there. You know, I think that there are definite clear examples, and you know, I can get back to specifics in a minute, where I think the concept of safety gets overused and I think uh, gets thrown out casually in ways that uh, that's problematic. But when I hear from students, you know, for example, hearing from students on campus who are Latino students, uh, students who uh, themselves are immigrants or kids of immigrants, they're at a point in time now where there is a, you know, for many of those folks, there's a genuine sense of uncertainty about their safety, right? That, you know, if you are a DACA student in the U.S. right now on any campus, you know, there's a real question about uh, your uh, long-term safety and ability to to carry out uh, your life here as you, you know, as you've always known it. Um, if you are a student who's come from one of the countries that uh, has been targeted in the, the Muslim ban and in larger uh, immigration restriction questions, you know, there's some real questions about your safety. And so, it's understandable that, you know, that that means that when there are things on that occur on a campus that feel like they're piling on to that same sense of uh, uh, lack of security and feeling threatened, that that those students actually express the fact that they feel, you know, that they feel threatened. And I think that that's something that's not only uh, reasonable, it's something that one might expect and that we have to acknowledge that. You know, and and I could maybe come back to the response is key, right? Because the response to that isn't necessarily a response of that means that we're going to wall off certain uh, topics or areas of discussion from you know from our discourse because those are things that might make people feel unsafe. But at the same time, I think uh, if you don't address those issues by acknowledging what the larger dynamics are uh, and the way that some members of the community might be hearing them, we're doing a disservice to those members of the community and under, and undermining a sense that those community members might belong. It, when I think about the the core of and and you know the term trigger warning is another term that I think has been misused and abused in a lot of contexts, but 
fundamentally, you know, I often think of the what's intended by a trigger warning is really actually just good pedagogy, right? That you should be alert to the fact that if you're teaching a class that you want all members of the class to be as engaged as possible and you should acknowledge anything that might be a barrier that makes some folks feel like they're disengaged. It's not a get out of class free pass that says that, you know, you really don't have to think about this at all, but it's kind of recognizing that if you don't acknowledge the fact that you know, there may be someone in the class that has experienced uh, trauma from sexual assault so that if you begin talking about uh, a, you know, if it's a history class and you're talking about the history of rape in America and you don't do something to acknowledge the fact that if you have yourself experienced sexual assault, you may respond to this in some way. That's actually just not good teaching in my view. It doesn't mean that those students have to engage the material, but acknowledging that some people are bringing in real perspective that may actually impact the way they're learning the material seems reasonable. It does sometimes seem to me that we have concepts that are reasonably well accepted in the world at large, that when college students begin talking about them or applying them in new ways, we, we get very surprised. Um, trigger warnings have always struck me as peculiar because so I used to be this show used to be on the Panoply Network. And every time you turned it on, there would be this little message like the show has explicit language right. because I'm foul mouth. Yes. Um, but th what, that's a trigger warning in a right. way. Right? right. I mean, you're right. saying that there may be something there that is going to either upset you if your kids hear it or, you know, whatever your kids are going to get something, you know, like movie ratings seem to me to basically be trigger warnings. And I believe they're mandated, if not by law, certainly by industry standards. And obviously, like anything, you can take it too far. Uh, and it seems to me that college is often a place of extremity. Things mm -hmm. get taken too far almost by nature, right. like <laughs> neurochemically, like mm -hmm. that age, you're taking things too right. far. But the idea that you might have like a, hey, um, you might want to sit down before you hear this. Right. It just is not such an alien concept right. as you sometimes make it seem. Well, and I'm also I'm always fascinated by the way that. The politi uh, politicalization of concepts like that shift over time, right? So if you go back 25, 30 years and you have uh, Tipper Gore and a just group of Tipper activists yeah. who, are, you know, who are saying that there should be a warning before you put on Purple Rain, you know, that that actually... Well, I mean, there should be. Yeah. <laughs> that, it's too sexy. Yeah. <laughs> No, there actually should be a warning that listen to this more. Keeping, <laughs> but the, but that that the fact that that was then seen as a you know a statement of conservative principle that there's a and I'm going to use the word decency that there's a concept of broader decency in our society that should be respected and this is a way to kind of to help expand mm -hmm. that decency. That if you flip that around, I think a lot of the conversations that are happening on campus are also about decency, just defined in a different way. Uh, and there are students on campus, I think there are larger groups in society who are saying that there are some things that, you know, in their view, challenges their sense of decency. And it's not that they want that rejected or taken away, but that it should be acknowledged in some way. You know, we had an incident on campus last year, actually a series of incidents on campus last year of use of casual use of racial epithets on 
campus. And by some groups, actually primarily white students, um, some of it is in casual use of racial epithets, often in the concept of context of repeating rap lyrics. And so uh, groups of white students who would be repeating rap lyrics, rap lyrics that contain uh, racial epithets, and then uh, students of color, primarily African-American students who are there overhearing this feeling, you know, sort of offended that that's, you know, that that's still actually public declamation of racial, racial epithets by, by whites. And it led to interesting discussions on campus. And a, a, I was really moved by an open letter that our Black Student Union sent to, to campus that, you know, it, it actually pointed out that it's not necessarily, uh, you know, that their aim wasn't to abridge the free speech rights of their fellow students, that they recognize that students, you know, everyone on campus has the right to uh, to say that and certainly say that in terms of the context of repeating lyrics that are popular lyrics, but that if your classmates and your peers and your friends in some context have told you that they, that makes them feel uncomfortable and you still insist on doing it, it's not that you should feel, you know, it's not that you should not do this because you don't have the right to do it, but maybe you shouldn't do it because out of decency, if your friend has told you that oh, this really makes me feel uncomfortable, you may want to acknowledge that you want to uh, be respectful of your friend, right? And that there's something deeper there. And sometimes I think that's the issue. It's not that uh, folks want a, a rigid set of rules for folks to follow, but maybe an acknowledgement and especially an acknowledgement that if it's already been put out there that, you know, I prefer to be, these are the pronouns that I prefer to be called and you still insist on calling me a different set of pronouns, that actually is something that gets to a sense of uh, disrespect for who I, you know, how I present myself as a human, and I think actually gets into that. It's not that it's, you know, it's not that it is violating a set of rules or principles. It's actually just, it's not. It's getting to a sort of type of indecency in our community that I think we should hold ourselves to a higher standard. So I want to get on uh, on at this issue of decency because I think it's an important one. You gave a, a fascinating speech a while back where you said that for all the discussion that campuses were, and we should say here, we're, a lot of this debate is about, it's like 200 campuses, right? right? There are 4,000 colleges or community colleges, right? And they're, you know, they're, they're not, they're not all like riven by these discussions about gender pronouns. Well, um, and in fact, I'd say that in many ways, the notion of a free speech crisis on campus is a, it's a privileged institution, an elite institution problem, right? Of institutions where students are traditional age, typically residential, typically full-time. Uh, and yeah, I think we should just acknowledge that most of the college students in the country are not traditional age. They're not full-time. They're working. Uh, and many of them, the real crisis is around issue of food security yep. and other things and not- Loan not repayment. Loan repayment mm -hmm. and, and not the types of issues we're talking about. So no, I think that's important to acknowledge. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Nobody likes it when I say this, but I think that there is a lot of uh, a, a kind of identity politics we don't give too much credence to at play in this conversation where things happening on elite campuses are extremely important particularly speech issues happening on elite campuses are extremely important to people who went to elite campuses and now often go and lecture on elite campuses. Right. It's a reasonably narrow substrata of the American <laughs> population, but they have an enormous amount of power over the public conversation. 
Uh, and so it, it gets a lot. It gets a lot of attention. Well, well and I think, and I know I sort of don't want to take us on too much of a tangent this and is to a come podcast. back to the topic. Go we can, we can tangent away. But I think you know we often see that happen in higher education policy in general. You know, and I and I say this as someone who is a a product of selective schools who now leads a selective school, right? So I'm as part of the problem as anyone else. But the you know if you look at say the folks who typically work at the Department of Education, whether under a Democratic administration or a Republican administration, those are folks who have come from these types of institutions. So policy is often shaped by the perspective of what's going to be important for those institutions, and it leaves out the fact you know some of these fundamental issues around what the majority of college students actually struggle with and what the majority of institutions that are higher ed institutions struggle with. And it's, a, you know, I think it, it has implications not only for media and the broader discourse, but actually I think in a policy perspective, Absolutely. it's really important. But you gave a speech uh, not too long ago and, and you talked about the idea of these campuses as ever having been bastions of free speech is ever having been these completely open, unbelievably tolerant of all ideas and all behavior spaces uh, as being wrong. And you said that the approach taken earlier in history was far stricter than anything that 21st century of critics of higher education sees a product of political correctness. Can you talk a bit about that context? Sure. You know, um, and using my own institution, so Kenyon had a statement of students' rights and responsibilities that we just revised about two years ago, but the last major revision had been in the early 1960s, I think around 1963, 1964. And, you know, it had the statement that explicitly that any student behavior that offended the sensibilities of anyone on campus, including visitors, faculty, staff, community members walking through, uh, would be subject to, you know, the strictest discipline, right? So, you know, and that broad notion of offend the sensibilities of anyone <laughs> on the campus community, you know, is in some ways a much broader stroke uh, than anything that I think is often pointed to as overreaches of political correctness, right? And I think that came from a sense institutions as uh, not just, uh, you know, a education in terms of transmission of content, but uh, a broader socialization of students and the a training of students in what is acceptable social behavior that's going to be uh, useful for one when one graduates from college. And, and you can look back to early writings in the, uh, you know, 19th, early 20th century on uh, the mission of not just American higher education, but sort of Anglo-American higher education, this notion of the importance of the residential experience because you are bringing together uh, groups of people to socialize them in how to live together as groups of people and what's acceptable behavior, uh, kind of part of the whole mission of the institution. What I think has changed, and I think of, I think there are two different uh, phenomena that happened. You know, one is that uh, coming out of the late 1960s, early 1970s, um, you know, and certainly once the rejection of the traditional view of in local parentis and the kind of whole collection of you just changes. You don't say what that is for people who oh, sorry. don't know. Uh, in local parentis, the idea that the the college, the institution steps in to play the role of parent for the, the students on campus and that, that you know, it was pretty accepted um, you know, and manifest itself in really until the the late 1960s in what were known as the parietal rules about uh, 
who gets to visit in your dorm after hours and pretty strict regulations of what student life looked like. Uh, that, you know, we did go through a period where that was rejected in a kind of broader sense of, you know, opening up uh, what happens on a college campus and challenging the notion of what the institution has to regulate. I think a deeper issue, though, is the change in who is actually on our campuses and that the demographics of campuses began to change. And you know, I've talked about this notion of and come back to the idea of, say, wearing blackface on campus at a party, right? That this is something that if you go back 50, 60 years ago um, and on many campuses that were all white campuses, I'd say in many social settings that might be all white, middle class, upper middle class social settings, that there was a a bit of humor, even if it's humor, kind of pushing the edge of uh, the notion of uh, whites wearing blackface for Halloween or for something that's a, a performance of some type. You get a campus where there are uh, students of color, faculty of color, staff of color uh, who do not feel that that is um, an appropriate social <laughs> action and you have a change in norms about whether that is uh, appropriate or kind of meeting standards of, of decency and behavior. And you get a sense in the college that, well, it's not okay to, uh, to, wear, uh, you know, to wear blackface at a party. I think that that's not a change in the role of the institution. Like sometimes that's depicted as, well, institutions now are regulating things they never would have regulated before. Institutions have always regulated and enforced a set of social norms. It's just that the social norms have evolved and the people on campus have evolved in driving the social norms and what might have been okay 50 years ago, you know, isn't seen as okay or decent now. But this seems like a, a very big deal to me. I mean, I, I often try to think in this conversation, what are people learning in the activities and controversies that that are, are getting talked about? And And one disagreement I've had with a lot of people who are more concerned about campus activism than I do is that oftentimes what somebody sees students learning when they say organize to stop a commencement speaker is intolerance. And oftentimes what I see them learning is activism, right? And I think activism is a reasonable thing to learn and certainly a reasonable thing to, to try out for yourself. Um, and something you're saying here, what, one thing it makes me think is that learning civility and learning how to operate in a diverse country and a rapidly diversifying country, it isn't easy. Uh, and a lot of us don't know how to do it. I mean, we know patterns of residential segregation. We know patterns of educational K-12 segregation. The idea that you might come to college with a lot of wrong ideas about how people want to be talked about or what upsets them or like what is important in their experience that might not be visible in yours seems pretty reasonable to me. And it sometimes looks to me like a lot of colleges now are having difficult but possibly quite valuable discussions over what it means to be in a diverse society where a lot more people have the power to say, you know what? Yeah, maybe people have always talked about me that way, but I always hated it or that was always bad for people like me. Um, and I think that it's sometimes for a lot of people, it is hard to see past the defensiveness to the idea that that kind of sensitivity, what Anil Dash calls fluency, is valuable. Right. Well, and no, I think you're exactly right. And there, there are two things that that come to mind. You know, one is a story that I I read um, again recently, or at least kind of stumbled on recently, that 
might be apocryphal, but uh, it certainly gets repeated in the context of the Bush family and was repeated during the various writings around the death of both uh, George H.W. Bush and Barbara Bush. And it's a story that at some point when he was young, uh, George W. Bush uh, came home uh, while while he was living in Texas with his family uh, as a young kid and repeated the N-word at home in the presence of his mother. And his mother stopped him and said, you know, that's actually not something that we do in this family, right? And sort of drew the line and made it very clear of why that was problematic. That actually, you know, what's the difference between that and what folks actually would say is kind of political correctness run amok on campus, right? You know, that I think that's a, you know, whether apocryphal or not, I think that's an example where one would point to as the here is the the decency of, you know, and the decency that was being held up that, you know, of this family uh, that's carried on to the next generation that sort of says, you know, what is what is acceptable, not acceptable, decent, indecent behavior. Yet, I think, you know, in my view, what is happening on campuses is very similar and parallel, right? It's students are trying to figure that out with each other. They don't necessarily get it right uh, in terms of how to talk to each other about this. But, you know, they're 18 to 22 and it's hard. And I'd say those of us who are older than 18 to 22 still don't get it right either. So our expectation of, you know, that they should be able to navigate things perfectly is, I think, unreasonable. But, you know, I do think that there is a, you know, you're exactly right, that there's not, um, you know, they're learning how to navigate in a, a diverse world. And the second thing I wanted to say on this is that for many students uh, coming to a college campus these days that the college environment is one of the most diverse educational environments they've been in and that's reflecting that in a lot of you know a lot of parts of the country there is a lot of segregation at the primary and secondary school levels and so you know this is a you know we are at times on our campuses doing an experiment where people of different races are living together going to classes together uh, that might not have happened for many of these students or might be part of the experience for many of these students, whether they went to uh, a suburban high school in a fairly segregated all-white community or they went to a an urban high school in an all-black or all-Latino community, right? That they're, this is still a, a, an experiment in integrated education. And it's exactly, you know, the power of that is that we hope that our students get out of this. You know, what does it mean to navigate in that type of world? And how do you connect and relate to each other in that type of world? And it may mean developing an understanding of how people are looking at things from different perspectives. So to try to make sure that that I'm including the the other perspective in this, um, I think there's a conversation that doesn't get had enough about the mainstream of these conversations on campuses and the ways in which students are working these things out. And I do a lot of college speaking. I've spoken to Kenyan among other places, and I I am unfailingly impressed by college students. I mean, their thoughtfulness, their the quality of their questions, the way they're navigating some of this stuff, the way they're thinking about some of these conversations being had about them. But there's also, you know, this set of, you know, their anecdotes or their stories that come up that I would say what they tend to reflect is administrators who are extremely sensitive to student pressure and to student pressure getting out of hand. I mean, there's this famous story out of Yale, and I even feel like I fully understand the story, but 
where, you know, an email went out that, you know, maybe it's not actually the college's, uh, it should not be the college's uh, mandate to tell people what kinds of Halloween costumes are and are not offensive. And kids got really angry at the professor or the resident advisor who sent the email and basically like organized till they had to leave campus and, and you know, they weren't sufficiently protected by the administrators. So I guess my question for you is, is this, like, what is the role of administrators in this? What is the role of administrators within a somewhat hothouse atmosphere where people, you know, I think college is a time when people try on in a somewhat safe space a lot more extremism than they than they tend to in other parts of their life. Um, what is the role of making sure that as people try to figure this out, they don't do so in ways that chill faculty away from addressing hard topics or chill other students away from saying something where they're not sure it's right, but they want to broach the subject? I mean, Something cannot be a constitutional threat to free speech, but it can still be a chilling of speech. I mean, how do you think about how do you think about creating a space where these conversations can be had in healthy ways rather than unhealthy ones? Yeah, and I think the the challenge is that doing that generally means uh, largely alienating folks on all sides of. Uh, of a controversy or a dilemma, right? Because it's the as a as a editor in chief, I I, the, I resonate to that exactly. answer quite a bit. You know, and uh, former editor in chief, yes. I should say. Um, you know, and as an example, uh, you know, we had a controversy on campus that elicited, uh, you know, strong statements from some faculty and some students. And coming out of that, accusations that those strong statements from some faculty and students were silencing the perspectives of other members of the community. At the same time, uh, I received letters that said that the faculty who made those strong statements should be punished for the statements they've made <laughs> uh, because, in fact, they were um, overstepping uh, a sense of overstepping bounds. And so this sort of strange thing that in the name of free speech, one has to punish some speech, which is maybe... Um, Wasn't that know, how it always goes, though? Yes, should be free, but not experience. necessarily free, enough, you know. And so that notion of... You know, the bottom line is that uh, there are going to be moments where there is controversy, there is, you know, upsetting of the environment on a campus as there is in the broader world. And actually, there's a lot of learning that happens from those moments of tension and friction. Uh, you know, the challenge is how do you actually make sure that something comes out of that that is a, a moment of learning where everyone sort of comes out on the other side not necessarily having changed their mind on anything, because my experience is that no one ever changes their mind on these types of stuff, uh, types of experiences, but but they've maybe learned and moved forward. There's an added challenge, I think, on a college campus in that you know we lose a quarter of our students every year, right? That you know, one of the classes graduates, you get a new class in um, the structure. And again, I'm speaking only very traditional campuses like Kenyon, but you know the structure is we have a academic year that is nine months of the year and then, you know, a largely almost three months of the summer where everyone disperses. They do other learning experiences, but they're not, they're on campus. What I find is that that means that sustaining a conversation that comes out of a controversy is very difficult because, you know, the the attention span of the community, not only is it limited in the way that, you know, all of our attention spans get limited around controversy and the next thing grabs our attention. But, you know, like I, you know, this year when we look back on the controversy of last year, 
a quarter of the students have no memory of what that was <laughs> whatsoever. Um, you know, about another eighth of the students were studying away during the controversy. So they were hearing about it through social media, but they weren't actually experiencing it. Uh, and the others, you know, did other stuff over the summer and have largely forgotten about it when they came back. And so you sort of get this episodic, uh, a burst of conversation and discussion in a moment that then disperses uh, and, you know, I think what we've been struggling with a bit is how do you how do you sustain that over time in some way so that you don't just reproduce the same thing in whether it's one year or two years or something like that in some cycle. So there's something here. You're just talking about the tensions of this stuff that I, I think is interesting, particularly on residential colleges. Something that, that you were talking about with the, the old Kenyan code of conduct is residential colleges have these dual roles. I mean, one is that they are meant to teach people and to foster free inquiry, including dangerous forms of free inquiry. Another, uh, and this is related to the job of having kids come live there away from their parents and away from their communities for the very first time, is to teach them civility, decency, how to live in a community that is a new community and, 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 and get by. I mean, there's a certain amount of just teaching people how to operate in the world. And it often feels to me that a lot of these controversies end up pitting these two values against each other. You have one side saying, this is an example of something that should be understood in our, uh, you know, encouraging free and open inquiry, right? We want to have this very offensive speaker on campus. Um, and this is part of free and open inquiry. And somebody else says, no, no, no. Like, this is part of decency and 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 teaching each other to view each other with respect and and being part of a community in an inclusive and, and and reasonable fashion. This is part of like that old Kenyan code where you know if it offends people, um, you're not supposed to be doing it. And I'm curious how how you see those two things. Are they in conflict or are they just put into conflict? How do you see them uh, interrelating? And I do think they come into conflict uh, at particular moments for particular individuals, right? And then maybe. To give a specific example, we have, you know, on campus, uh, we have one dining hall and it's the dining hall is sort of the, the main gathering place of students on campus in the sense that uh, all students are required to live on campus and to be part of the, the meal program. So, you know, every day everyone has to cross through the dining hall at some point in time, which means that, you know, it's both a a community space in terms of, you know, it's kind of like the living room and dining room. You know, if you have to eat there every day, you know, it's sort of the place that you have to, you have to pass. And there are some who have said that, you know, this is kind of my moment to, um, you know, to not think about uh, things that might be pushing and challenging me in some ways. At the same time, it's the main gathering place of campus, right? So if you're going to have political activism, <laughs> the entryway to the dining hall is kind of the place where you can have the biggest impact on the most eyes that see it and engage. And so this question, should the entryway to the servery of the dining hall be free from protest? And it, you know, it comes up with some specific groups. And so we've uh, had uh, installations and demonstrations in that space from you know, a pro-Palestinian group uh, and have had the response from some Jewish students on campus that, you know, this is, you know, it's an extension of the safety argument, but it's also, you know, it has a, a little bit of a component there of, you know, so this is basically like I'm coming into my personal kitchen or the equivalent of my personal kitchen and I am being confronted with, um, you know, sort of images of, you uh, 
Israeli soldiers shooting Palestinian women and children, right? And this is this is disturbing me in a way that I don't want to want to be disturbed. You have from the activists the standpoint of, you know, this is a moment in which we should all be aware of this larger thing going on in the world around us and, you know, in the tradition of activism, put it in folks' faces in the way that uh, is most effective as possible. And that's the place on campus to do it. So, no, so it does, it actually comes into conflict often. Uh, and, you know, we've had the conversations just openly about, okay, why is that a space in which protests should be allowed? And, you know, our sense is that, yeah, it is the, it is the closest thing to a crossroad commons that we have on campus. And so to restrict that space from protest would be problematic. That said, we've had conversations about, you know, should someone be allowed to knock on your dorm room door, um, you know, especially kind of after hours in some way, uh, with a, you know, leaflet to sort of, you should know, here's something you should know about. And sort of, well, at some point it does begin to cross the line of, you know, that's my, now you're invading my personal space, right? And if I don't, if my dorm room <laughs> is something that anyone can come into at any time and bring in the outside world, if I want to keep it out, then maybe that's space that, you know, should be, you know, I should have some control over. My sense as an administrator and what the college should be doing isn't necessarily to come up with a set of, from our view, here are the a priori rules of, you know, these spaces are First Amendment okay zones and these spaces are not, but actually the conversations that happen there so that people understand of, you know, what's the difference between different types of spaces on campus and they actually have an understanding of what the dynamics are around them you can then actually make a choice do you want to be uh, do you want to be respectful for that of that or not but you're sort of making that choice informed by a broader conversation of what the what the dynamics are surrounding it hi we're visible we're the wireless company with nothing to hide seriously hidden fees we don't have them annual contracts not our thing Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right, $25 a month every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. 
were talking a little bit ago about how the idea of colleges being, you know, in local parentis has dissolved. And we've only talked about what's replaced it. But but it does seem to me that a contributor to some of these debates is that college students are now paying enormous amounts of money to be at these residential campuses. I mean, they often graduate with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. I mean, in even places that, you know, we're, we're speaking here at UC Berkeley, like I'm a product of the University of California system, it's gotten a lot more expensive than it was in, say, the 1970s. And so there, there was this model of colleges where you went, and in some ways, particularly at public ones, society was really bearing the cost of your education and, you know, had could ask a lot of you in return for that. And now you have, you know, a lot of kids going and bearing a lot of the cost of their own education and being in debt for that for years or decades to come and feeling like that makes them more of a consumer. And how much do you think this idea of the student as consumer, who, like a consumer, has a right to say, I don't like how these classes are being taught. I don't want that to be my commencement speaker. I disagree with that commencement speaker. I was paid to be here. I don't want you to give me a commencement speaker who, like, turns my stomach. How much do you think that that difference um, driven by like the economics of campuses is part of the conversations we're having on them now. I actually think uh, I don't hear or observe much that makes me think that students take on uh, or that there's a direct connection between a sense of consumerism or consumer approach that students may take to their education and the larger issues around a sense of safety or what it means to be part of the campus. Um, That could be a function of Kenyan in particular, uh, but I don't, you know, I don't see that as a larger trend. What I do think is, um, and and there are two different, so I have two different thoughts on that. One is that at times, as an institution, we sell to students uh, an image of what it means to to join and be a part of that campus, and often that means, you know, and. Kenyon isn't alone in this. Lots of institutions say this, where, you know, coming to campus is like joining and coming and being part of a family, that we have a set of larger ideals and values that we believe in, you know, that this is part of what attracts and brings students to our campus. Uh, And so there are points of tension when they realize that there are ways that the institution falls short of the values that might have brought them there. Um, and and I'd say it's inevitable that we will fall short, right? Because it's the it, we set the bar really high and reality intervenes when when students come to campus. And so so it's not necessarily a consumer-driven view of uh, I'm spending a quarter of a million dollars, this is what I want. I think it is impacted by the fact that we are presenting an idealistic vision of what a college experience might be like. And the reality sometimes, you know, the reality happens that that's not the, that that's not the case. You know, I think the, it's, I'm struck often by the number of students uh, who will really, and and I think are, are very, being very genuine in this and a sense of disappointment with the institution and the community when there is an incidence of intolerance or bias uh, that happens on campus. And some of that uh, frustration is directed at the college that, you know, we presented ourselves as a community where we value a type of mutual respect. And I get here and I hear someone being homophobic <laughs> on campus. You know, the college has 
you know, sold me a bill of goods in terms of what to expect. So I think that's the piece where I kind of, I see that the notion of how we present ourselves or sort of sell ourselves to students uh, and, and how we often come up short really becomes an issue. How much do you think that that is relevant to the way students think about their education? You, you've talked in speeches before that there can be a danger as a college president in speaking of learning in purely transactional terms. And I think in general, there's a feeling that we have lost a sense of the liberal arts education being there to enrich our souls, to enrich the way we move through the world, that it's gotten to, that we've gotten into a place where people feel and students feel that you've really got to go and get marketable skills that are going to get you a job as soon as you get out. And whether or not that is right, um, you know, in the way that people think about doing it, it's understandable if you've got student loans to pay back and, and, and debt to pay back. How much do you feel that we have begun to think of learning and particularly um, university learning as too transactional, as too much a, a return on an investment and not a like a foundation for a certain kind of examined life. Right. And and I agree that, you know, we are putting an increasing emphasis on the concept of return on investment. And a lot of that is understandable as cost has gone up and cost has gone up faster than uh, than family incomes in the US have gone up. You know, that if you are investing, and I, I use the word investing deliberately because, you know, a Kenyan education over four years is about a quarter of a million dollars, right? And that's a that's a substantial sum of money that really is an investment that families are making. It's reasonable to ask in specific terms, okay, what's the return on that going to be on the other side? And I do think that there was an era where institutions took for granted that, well, everyone knows why a liberal arts education matters. Uh, and you know, didn't take the effort to explain, well, what's the impact of this going to be on on one's life? And that that's contributed to a larger misunderstanding that actually a liberal arts education turns out to be a good platform for finding a job and being an entrepreneur and all of those things. So, so I think we need to keep our focus on talking about the fact that there is economic value to a liberal arts education. But you've, at times it does feel like the pendulum swings too far in the other direction. And you know, we lose sight of the fact that you know, part of the education is about developing oneself to be a, you know, not only a good citizen, but someone with the, the potential for a career and, and moving, in, uh, moving forward economically. But it's also about being a good citizen and having an impact on one's community uh, and also just having a deeper understanding of self and one's connection to the world. And that those are two things that they're harder to measure in quantitative terms, but they're invaluable in terms of what it means uh, in terms of you know, the impact of the education later on. And when I talk to alums, you know, and talking to many alums who are successful in their career, what they actually remember the most are those other things that they picked up in their education, right? So the, the long-term pieces that really stick with people are, are often the more intangible, holistic components. You know, it's interesting, um, Howard Gardner, the educational researcher at Harvard, has been doing a uh, study that is now actually now, he's now reaching the point where we're starting to talk about the data and, and is sort of beginning to publish some of the results, uh, where they surveyed about 2,000 students, faculty, staff, alumni at 10 different institutions. Uh, and 
looking at what are the things that people value about the educational experience and then what are the things that, uh, what are kind of responses that people have to the education they're receiving. And one of the things he's finding as an interesting correlation and the, the data are still pretty new. So um, I'm just curious to see as, as more of this begins to come out is that you can group people in the categories like do they see their education as transactional? Do they see it as exploratory? Do they see it as kind of more holistic? Uh, and also measure what sense of belonging and connection do they have to the educational experience. And not surprisingly, the more transactional you see your education, the less likely you are to feel connected to the broader sense of community around on a campus or, or with others. Uh, and the more you tend to see education as something that's about sort of more larger holistic personal development, the, the higher your sense of belonging uh, and connection. And so there is something there that as we begin to put a stronger emphasis on the transactional, we might be having these unintended consequences in terms of how people begin to see not just how they relate to their education, but how they relate to the campus and the community. You know, there I, I was reading this piece about parenting and its big takeaway was children do not listen to what you say. They watch what you do. And I, I think about that in a lot of parts of our society now, that there is a lot of talk on college campuses about all these other things, you know, being part of the community and the code of conduct and who we are and who we're trying to learn being here. But if you just keep jacking up costs, people understand that this is a good, this is a market good and you're being charged as much as the market can bear. And the idea is that, you know, hopefully it's going to be an investment that that pays off for you. And it, it makes me think about some of these ideas in, in, in society right now. I mean, you know, Bernie Sanders was out with his free college plans and Obviously, they're not truly free. We pay for it through taxes on and on down the line. But one of the interesting debates around that was, well, distributionally, if you run the numbers, maybe this doesn't make as much sense as a more targeted bit of help. And certainly at a lot of the colleges I'm familiar with, UCs are good examples. You know, part of the idea is, well, we're going to raise um, ticket tuition, right? Uh, how much, you know, you actually see on the sticker. But a lot of that is going to go into financial aid. And so not everybody's actually going to pay that tuition. And a lot of that makes sense to me as a wonk, right, as a policy person. And then I wonder downstream that as we kind of keep optimizing for this and, you know, being in this kind of competition, if we're not putting ourselves in a position where, well, we've made education just a market good and it works by market logic. And even where we're trying to do some subsidies around the edges, like we're doing them under sort of market terms. And so people are going to experience it as a market thing and something is going to be fundamentally lost from when it was designed somewhat differently than that. It may be an overly idyllic idea of what an education can or should be, but I, I do think something long term is going to be lost if people just understand this to be uh, an economic transaction between them in the school. And to the extent that that really is what it is, to the extent that it is like the fundamental expense of, of early adulthood or the fundamental expense for their family, that we can talk all we want, right? They're going to see what we did and they're going to experience it that way. That's an interesting question. And I maybe, you know, turning that around a bit, I'm not sure there's been an era where college education has been something that is either not a market good or not something that is sort of held to scarcity level to become an, an elite 
good, right? That right. That, that second fact, one might well be the right. You had so a lot that, of trades so, when it wasn't a market good, but it was an right. elite good. So that you know, through most of the history of higher education, you know, the access and certainly, you know, and again, I kind of come back to we're talking about the small subset of <laughs> institutions, but but access to that college education was held inaccessible to most of the population, uh, either by uh, you know, sort of social status required to get into the loop to get access to the education or direct restriction by the institution, but that, you know, education was an elite good that only a few folks who were lucky enough to break in from outside uh, managed to. And now I do think that the market status of education, you know, the cost partially serves that same function, right, as the, the gate uh, for getting in. With the idea that, and I'd say a lot of institutions do more on the subsidy than just subsidizing around the edges, right? That, yeah, the, that's that fair. it's built that into clip. the expenses of the institution that um, those who can afford to pay full price are going to be subsidizing the others that come in. And part of the articulation of that is that, and this actually ties back to one of the earlier topics in our conversation is that there's real value to learning in a community that has a broad range of different types of people in it. Uh, and, and I think we understand that a bit more now. Uh, and we understand the value of having a strong emphasis on kind of academic creative talent that's brought there and that that's not necessarily correlated with the folks who can afford to, to, to pay. So when we ask people to pay full price with the idea that part of that full price is subsidizing the cost of maybe the other half of the population that's at the school, it's recognizing that the quality of the educational experience is better. <laughs> and maybe we could have a place where there wasn't that subsidy going on, but the, the learning experience would be the weaker for it. That model, I think, in and of itself, uh, from a, I think both from a, a wonky policy perspective and actually I think kind of from a a moral good perspective makes a lot of sense to me where the challenge is that now we're reaching a point where the cost <laughs> is so high that the is it actually mathematically sustainable right because do you have enough people who can afford to pay that full price that the whole subsidy model of paying for others works and that is the it's kind of the reckoning that I worry about in the larger crisis of the financial model of higher education is that will there you know will we reach a point in which uh, we begin pricing out you know if you to say people talked about private higher education especially getting too expensive for decades and you know their time magazine cover stories from the 70s that basically said that you know can you believe it college is going to cost like three thousand dollars next year and the world is going to end but you know the difference is that there had always been at least some correlation between the slope of family incomes and the the growth of tuition right I mean they didn't have the same slope but they weren't I know on a podcast like making hand motions is really pretty useless I think I am I do it I do it all the time know, kind of, there's a lot of like air charting exactly. that happens on you know, podcasts they weren't doing this you, you, right? you were seeing <laughs> you were seeing if, if you were not here um, Sean was uh, miming <laughs> 
a upward moving chart. Yes. So and and diverging curves of uh, of family income and tuition. We're seeing that basically since uh, 2008 that that divergence is is huge, right? And the gap between the growth of family income, which has been pretty flat, and the rising cost of tuition is now it now means that I think there is a real jeopardy that at some point we're going to reach a point where the number of people who can really afford to pay tuition is so small that this model of subsidizing the others is just going to inherently break down. I, I think that's right. You know, one of the things that makes me think, to, to be self-critical of the point I made earlier, is that particularly as it gets more expensive, it becomes harder to come up with any other model though, right? So, you know, I, w- I was thinking while you're talking, okay, what era was I actually talking about there? What was happening in the back of my head when I said, oh, this time when it wasn't a market good? And, and I think I was thinking about how I understand the University of California system from like the 70s, which is this remarkable system. But you were going to college, you know, for a couple hundred bucks. And now you're not doing that. And on the other hand, though, now that, I mean, college genuinely is expensive and, you know, we can talk about why that is and whether it should be. And, you know, there's a whole set of interesting debates in that. But given that it is expensive to be at these elite schools, whether they're run by the state or run privately, are you really saying is like what I is what I am really saying that that should be subsidized by the people who aren't going to college? Right. That the proper way to understand that subsidy is they should come from the people who aren't benefiting from that in a direct way at all. I mean, they might benefit from you know, downstream economic growth and innovations and whatever. I don't want to take all of that away, but, you know, neither they nor their children are going, but they're paying for it in their tax dollars. And so, as you say, you know, there's a very, there's an almost ineluctable logic about, okay, it should be the more economically privileged people actually at the institution. Um, But as it gets more and more expensive, that becomes really the only thing that can possibly make sense. And it just means that some of these other values cannot be, cannot be instantiated. Um, it, it puts me in a kind of depressed place, honestly. Uh, you know, in, in, in the past couple of years, I think I've become much more sensitive to the idea that market logic, um, I'm a believer in markets, but walling off certain things from market logic is a lot harder to do than I think we used to give it credit for. Um, you can't, you can't separate the way things in society work as well as you might want. And that means that asking things to abide by a set of values that might be different than how we're financing them and how people are getting in and out of them becomes really hard in the long run. Um, because all of a sudden nothing else makes sense. Like once the thing has been running as a market for long enough, it has to like downstream, it has to be operated like a market and you can't ask people to bear its cost and not bear its benefits. Like the whole thing just becomes, the whole thing becomes almost tautological in the way it has to be understood on on not just a financial but also a moral level. You know, I think the the interesting thing in higher education is that there's some demographic forces that are at play over the course of the next few years, which are going to have a big impact on the sector overall. You know, one of them is just that the uh, the number of high school graduates is flattening to declining over the course of the next decade or more. Right, so we can. And is that a demographic trend or an achievement trend? A demographic trend. So that is just measuring, you know, number of eighteen-year-olds predicted over time, so, which is something that I feel nervous about. And the the natural scientist in me always feels nervous about projecting uh, the projection work that social scientists do. But that one actually I feel comfortable with, right? That we know the number of we know the number of eight-year-olds now, so I have a pretty good idea of what the number of eighteen-year-olds should look like ten years from now. And that is so that is scary in the sense of basically what it's saying is that the 
the overall possible market for college students we know is flattening or declining, right? And that's going to have an impact. Um, we know that incomes are flat to declining in some areas. Uh, and we know that where people are, literally where they are in the country is shifting. So those 18-year-olds 10 years from now are going to be coming from very different parts of the country than they were 20 years ago. You know, Ohio, where we are is a good example, where Ohio has declining population of teenagers projected out over the course of the next few years. Ohio has an awful lot of colleges, um, most of which draw regionally, right? So what does that mean for schools that are drawing regionally? Uh, that are facing declining populations, also in a part of the country where incomes are, you know, flat or declining even more so than out on the coast. So we're seeing these larger demographic trends and market trends that are impacting institutions in different, you know, in a range of different ways. I think that uh, institutions which have been effective at building a national draw. I think Kenyon is one of them, right? So we are, we're located in Ohio, but about 12% of our students come from Ohio. The rest come from around the country. Uh, that's going to buffer us a bit so that we're not dependent on the, the parts of the country that are most declining in population. But these larger trends about income and income inequality and other things are just inevitably going to impact the ability to, to bring students. And those are you know, it's a, it's an actual, it's a reality that has to be, uh, you know, it's one of the things that I think keeps me and other college presidents up at night is kind of projecting that, you know, there's a real. I guess I, I hear that. And the situation sometimes looks to me like it should almost be understood in the opposite direction. I sometimes look at college in America and particularly, uh, and, and here we're talking about selective residential college in America. And I wonder why have the colleges agreed to enter into this endless arms race of competition between each other for students, acting as if the only way to think about this is scarcity rather than abundance? We don't have that many institutions for all that we're talking about markets and everything else. I mean, Harvard sits on, I will not remember the level of their endowment right now. You may know it off the top of your head. It's huge. It's what huge. A, yes. They're like it's one of the a, biggest hedge funds in the world. Right. There could be eight Harvards. Right. I mean, there could be a hundred Harvards. Mm -hmm. uh, the University of California system, which is, I think, one of the truly remarkable public um, institutions in the world. We have opened up Merced in the past, you know, I guess two decades probably, but we've not opened up 10 more. Certainly um, not proportional to the growth in population exactly. of California in the past um, 50 there's years. There's only one Kenyan, only one Princeton. I mean, if I were having a conversation with you 25 years ago, we'd be talking about the same colleges. And it's not like they're entering into a franchise model. And one reason, I mean, there are a lot of reasons things are getting more expensive. But one reason is that if what you've got is a pretty uh, set number of slots in your college, but the important thing is you're getting the absolute best people for them, then you end up in an arms race for how to attract those people. And you get into some of these conversations about climbing walls, but you know, it's also arms race for faculty and other things. So I, I take your point about declining sort of demographics coming in, although I could imagine some of that potentially being changed by foreign students where we attract, a, a America attracts a lot of foreign college students. But why think about it that way at all? Why shouldn't there be a lot more of these successful institutions? It doesn't look to me looking at them like they are suffering from any lack of people who would like to go. What it seems to me is that we've kept the supply artificially constrained. And that's part of why prices are high. 
And it's part of why this all can't be shared more widely. Yeah, so it's interesting. I don't know if we've kept the the true supply constrained as much as, you know, the market demand is correlated with a, a sense of prestige, right? And a, and a sense of prestige for... But we've kept the supply of the prestige more constrained than it right. has to be. And some of that, I think, though, is, is connected to the way in which we define prestige. And, and we meaning not necessarily the, the institutions, but I think more broadly in society. I mean, it's sort of a, you know, the, the gold standard for prestige is still the notion of not being able to get in. Right. And the idea of not being able to get in sort of basically means you there can only be so many places that are truly prestigious because um, the measure of prestige is the fact that most people can't go. One of the things that I find just uh, mind boggling in some way is that, you know, and if you think about things like U.S. news rankings and other things that we we somehow measure excellence in institutions by the number of students we reject. And the more the more students that we don't let in, it must inherently be a better place. So Harvard and Stanford only let in two percent to four percent, or you know they reject ninety five, ninety four, ninety six percent of the students. That's actually a really good thing, right? Um, and so what I think needs to happen in some ways is is not just a change in institutional behavior, but a change in the way we talk about how one measures excellence in higher education to not correlate the notion of exclusivity with the idea of excellence right and that as long as there's a there's a notion that you need to keep the the supply at the top really small and everything else gets weaker as it goes down that's going to be the case we see that not only in the privates but you know in some ways the publics have been built on that same model where most states have the notion of the flagship institution which is recognized as being way better than every place else, and then the other institutions, or in or in California, the UCs, and then the other institutions. And you know, dating back, I mean, the idea of the the California model was that you know the UCs were deliberately going to be kept as um, smaller in number and more elite and harder to get into, and then the Cal States were going to be you know, serving the broader masses, but you sort of wanted to, you, you actually, there was a conscious decision to sort of constrict the top. And and I think that's what you're sort of pointing to as something to undo uh, that, some of which I think is driven by institutional behavior, but some of it is sort of this more natural direction in which uh, the the way we've defined what's most desirable in education uh, in terms of what's most exclusive and most exclusive means that it has to be limited in number and hard to get into. There's some amazing institutions that have a lot of space for students that I'm worried may be in trouble because people are overlooking them because why would I pay to go there if they let in 60% of the students, right? It's not the question of why would I pay to go there depending on what their education is like or what the outcomes are like on the other end. I think it's a really sharp way of putting that and and it speaks to something you were you were just talking about in there that we don't we don't have a good way of measuring educational higher educational excellence. You don't take a test when you leave college. Um you know to some degree we can look at things like job placement and and, and so on but the way society is absorbing this is based off of you know what is a quality of the credential and the quality of the credential is to some degree measured by the scarcity with which it exists in society. And 
that isn't how we think about other products, right? Other things don't get worse as we sell more of them, right? The idea is actually, that's great. Everybody likes iPhones. That means the iPhone is a really good product. Um, but it, it does speak to, there's a difficulty measuring what a higher education does for you. And it'd become even more difficult, right? If you link it up to some of the things we, we've been talking about throughout this conversation, you know, how does it do on making you a more decent member of society? How does it make you as a member of your community? You know, what kind of broader sense of your, of your role in, um, in, in your own life and the lives of those around you does it cultivate? Like you can't test on that. Um, but it, but it matters. And, uh, it, it just does speak to the way we've made, something so essential without ever defining it in a very clear way or without ever coming up with a way of knowing, are we actually achieving our goals with this? Right. Well, and I think that some of that may be tied up to in a, you know, thinking about this in the the longer arc of, of history and where we're going in the future that, you know, we are transitioning from a sense of education as being a um, something that was only available for a set of elites to something to a more meritocratic system, but now a meritocratic driven by market forces, right? So the the more money you have going into the meritocratic system, the more likely you are to to succeed or move upwards. We're still, I think, those tensions are still being sort of fought out uh, and worked out in the larger system, you know, that there's a, I think, a desire and and really, I think, a set of values that our educational system is really meant to reward excellence and potential excellence. There's the reality that it's also meant to help to sustain a hierarchical system uh, within society. And how those two things get worked out has really been a sort of struggle of the history of higher education for the past 50, 60 years, right? That that's, and we're still just seeing that play out. That feels to me like a good place to, to bring us to a close. Let me ask you the, the final question we always ask on the podcast, which is, what are three books? You're an educator. What are three books that have influenced you that you would recommend to others? Yeah, so actually, and you know, one is um, this larger issue of demographics in higher education. Um, Nathan Groth, he's an economist uh, at Carleton College, has a book that is uh, The Challenge of Demographics in Higher Education that is, it's a really great book at just doing a, a strong analysis of how, of how these things are, are happening in the higher education front. You know, actually on the identity, the question of sort of identity, uh, I've been reading, haven't finished yet, um, Anthony Apaya's The Lies That Bind, uh, which has just been a really fascinating book on what I do see is the the tensions between you know, the good and the challenging of of how one it, uh, carries the labels of identity with, uh, with them. And then The Scientist and Me uh, finished recently. I love the book Lab Girl, um, Hope Yarns. It's a memoir by a kind of paleobiologist, geologist uh, that deals in everything from the, you know, I think just a really great description of how the scientific process works on the ground, uh, interesting views on uh, climate change and evidence for climate change and how one thinks about that. And then also just a, a memoir of, of what it's like to be a woman scientist kind of moving through a world that is that is still heavily male dominated and oriented in some ways. And just a really, uh, really fun read. Sean Decatur, thank you very much. Thank you. 
Thank you to President Decatur for being here. Thank you to all of you for being here. Uh, thank you to Topher Ruth at UC Berkeley, to Jeff Geld at Vox Media. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com.